you know, if you look up close, you'll see it's frayed. But that's a sign of high aristocratic culture is to be able to wear frayed ties. That was in the preppy handbook. Um, uh, women's rights, which is a subset of, I guess, human rights, but it's also, of course, uh, an issue that affects slightly more than half the world's population. Uh, in looking at women's rights, let's start with some basic ideas about human rights. Uh, human rights, where do they come from? Anybody? Where do human rights come from? Ourselves, natural law. Yeah. Uh, Part of human dignity, I guess, is that what you're getting at? The other way of looking at it from a legal perspective is to say they come from ourselves in the sense that we make agreements or states make agreements in terms of treaties or human rights treaties. So this is, you know, instead of natural law, positive law is either an alternate theory or a complementary theory if you combine the two. That is, rights come either from nature or they come from our status as human beings and, and inhere to human beings as a result of the dignity that humanity is supposed to have. Now, these competing theories uh, still don't resolve one of the major dilemmas when we talk about human rights with women, and we'll get to that, namely cultural relativism. But just in terms of human rights, one of the big questions, are they rights of individuals or are they rights of groups? Are human rights only of individuals or are they only of groups or are they one or both? Yeah. yeah don't worry about reading it. I do want to know what that is under human dignity. Positivism. Thank you. Thank you. Um, are human rights rights of individuals or groups or both? Both. Why both? Well, as far as the groups go, because there's different rankings, there's different, there's different rankings for different social groups, and then there's like upper class, middle class, lower class, and each one has some sort of just mutual right, I guess. Are you saying the rights are different of different classes or the same? I think they're different. They are? What are the human rights of the rich? Can't be too rich and too thin? That's what Jackie Kennedy said. No, uh, no see, I mean, are you saying that upper class people have different rights than lower class people as human rights? Yes. De jure or de facto, as in law or in practice? Both. Both? Yes. Well, that's interesting. I'm not talking about legal rights, because clearly under the law, the rich have certain rights that the yeah. poor don't have, and vice versa, by the way. But I'm, I'm talking about human rights. I think so. What human rights do the rich have that you don't have? Assuming you're not rich. I know you're rich in uh, spirit. No, no, I'm, you're the one that said they had different rights. They do. Human rights, I'd say a person that... In law now, not in practice. In law? Um, I'd say, yes, I was just saying. In law, legally? Legally, in law? Is that what you mean? Literally, law? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Give me the 
just like I said, Lindsay Lohan, that's a law. She, she, she law. violated the law and she's continuing to judge camp. Uh, he's got caught with- Are these examples of in law or in practice, in fact? Well, I think as far as in law, you have like, for example, if you have covenants in neighborhoods, like if you have an upper class neighborhood. Are these human rights or just ordinary rights from the law? What Human rights either come from nature. You're saying nature says that the rich should have more rights than poor people? Is that what you're saying? Or are you just saying that's the way it is and, and nature's fighting against it? I think that's just the way it is. I don't think you should see that right now. But human rights, this is, this is interesting. This is fascinating, actually. <laughs> human rights make the claim of of equality at their core. That this, these are what all human beings have in common because they're human. Now, it's not to say that a country can't make a law that says rich people's property get more police protection. But normally, that's not what we call a human right. And what you seem to be saying is the fact of life. The rich will always have more power, more police protection, more legal access to the courts. and to, Pretend that it's just that's the way it works in practice, but it's not the law, is totally unrealistic. And that's a fascinating comment. The rich and the majority, you don't ever see them fight for human rights. You don't see the poor. Never. The you never see the rich. It's very rare. I don't really see rich people standing out protesting. And, um, I don't see anybody protesting anything. Except for Michael Moore. Okay. Michael Moore's rich. But. He's got rich out of protesting, so maybe it doesn't count. Um, but but, you don't but what I'm, what, what, here's what I'm trying to get at is that the conventional literature, and, and maybe you're right and the conventional literature is wrong, because it's a fascinating comment, you know, says that there, human rights are the rights that all human beings have equally because they're either human, that comes from nature, or because the treaties say that there is equality. And you're saying that's not the way it works, so let's let's not pretend. Is that what you're saying? You don't think any rich people ever looked out for poor people? Ted Kennedy? Oh yeah, no, no, yeah. I mean, there there are. But that's not how the world sees it. That's what individual practices that. The world just says we're celebrity culture, the celebrity like Lindsay Lohan gets treated one way, other people get treated another way. By the way, didn't she do some time? I'm sorry, I don't keep up on these things. Know, Forgive I me. I mean, there's some people who get prosecuted because they're rich and famous, because they get noticed. You ever think of that? Bill Clinton was impeached for doing what a lot of presidents have done. His reputation was hurt. His wife, wife was pretty angry. Is she really? She's in Washington. He's in Chappaqua. Well, that's another subject. I don't. I, I don't really know how they operate. Um, okay. So what I'm trying to get at here is that human rights. Some people say it comes from nature or from your status as a human being. Other people say it comes from treaties. 
among countries. Treaties like the, universe, uh, the UN Charter um, and nine major human rights treaties, including the one in the discussion today, CEDAW. Anyone read the chapter can tell me what CEDAW stands for? Yeah, something about women, that's right. Very good. It's a Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Like all major human rights treaty, it has a treaty expert committee that implements the provisions in three ways. First, um, by def giving the general comments on what the treaty articles require. Second, by reviewing state party reports, that is, the countries that ratify the treaty and submit reports on their compliance. And third, if you've ratified the optional protocol, uh, you can sue the country and they'll give a resolution to the case with non-binding commentary in general on uh, what these uh, three provisions, particular provisions mean. So again, general comments on the treaty provisions. Number two, uh, review of country reports on their compliance. And number three, case law for those countries that have ratified the optional protocol. That committee is also called CEDAW. Instead of the convention, it's the Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So like a lot of human rights treaties, it does have this apparatus to encourage compliance, but it doesn't really have enforcement power in the sense of a police force or even a court system. So it's a weak <coughs> treaty. One of the key questions about human rights treaties in general is, do they improve the status of the intended beneficiary's human rights, or do they have some negative aspects to them? One would suppose that a treaty that countries ratify would create a process where uh, country, excuse me, in stages, you know, they ratify the treaty, which leads to new legislation which internally leads to um, enforcement, domestic enforcement measures. Now, what's the, guess which country has never ratified CEDAW? US. It's not like the Children's Convention, we are the only country in the world that hasn't ratified the Children's Convention, but we're one of a few. Now what's happened here is that a large block of countries in the Pacific Islands and Islamic countries ratify with reservations. Now, this is a review question. What is a reservation? What's a treaty reservation? You should know this. Correct. Okay. Um, so a reservation is a, an exception to typically or formally supposed to be only be a couple of provisions at most. It's not supposed to counteract the overall purpose of the treaty. 
that would be considered an illegal reservation under international law. Now, you could make the argument that the Muslim countries that say we will comply with this treaty insofar as that it's consistent with Sharia law would be an illegal reservation because you could make the argument that Sharia law is inconsistent with the CEDAW. But nobody dare says that, and they don't say it's the United States, and we have reservations on a lot of the provisions. For example, the United States has a reservation on the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that says, like all the human rights treaties, this, we, we obey only insofar as this is consistent with the U.S. Constitution. Okay, well, the U.S. Constitution has a different provision than the ICCPR on free speech. We do not, um, we have, it is constitutionally protected speech to, to express hate. But in many countries and in the, the, this particular treaty, it is illegal to have hatred based on race or religion. It's legal in the United States to have speech on that basis. What's illegal is advocating violence in the United States. Now, since that's only one of many provisions in the treaty, to the extent that that is inconsistent with the treaty doesn't really matter so much because, in general, th th that particular treaty has many, many purposes. But CEDAW, the main purpose of it is, is major forms of equality for women and certainly the banning of discrimination against women. So uh, reasonable people might disagree, but a Muslim country will say that lots of acts that it does under Sharia is not constitute discrimination against women because all societies treat the sexes differently to some extent. And you could make, probably make the case that anytime you treat someone differently that, form, that constitutes a form of discrimination. For example, separate bathrooms. Now we, in our society, that it's common sense that you should have separate bathrooms. But suppose someone made the case, well, women's bathrooms, I don't know, ought to be bigger than men's because women have to sit down and therefore it takes more time to urinate. I hope I'm not offending anyone. Um, uh, and therefore, the line to the women's bathroom is always longer. So women's bathrooms should be bigger than men's bathrooms so that the amount of time spent in the bathroom, making this up, uh, but if you've ever been to an athletic contest and there are a lot of women in the audience, you know, they're always waiting. And the men are not, although the men drink a lot of beer and usually they line up for that reason, but that's another subject. Um, and then you can make the case, well, that's discrimination to give women larger bathrooms than men. Now maybe this is not a, a, a vital issue of importance for most people most of the time because most people, when they go to the bathroom, they don't have to wait. I mean, I don't really know. I generally don't have to wait for a urinal in the bathrooms in this particular building. And I never asked any of my female colleagues whether they ever have to wait. I, never, I assume they don't. Um, that's kind of a trivial example, not very important, right? Well, what one country might consider to be trivial, another might consider to be very, very important. For example, honor killings. Everyone know what that is? Read that in the chapter. What's an honor killing?
Right, and, and, and there are other examples. A typical one is, even if you haven't been alone with a guy, just wanting to marry someone at a romance, as opposed to having your individual selected. Um, and another example from Sharia law that's often cited that is on the books, but I don't believe happens all that often, which is a woman is raped and then she is prosecuted for fornication because a male witness is worth four women witnesses. And since it's his word against hers, uh, his counts four times as much. Therefore, uh, he accuses and he lies and he says not only was she not raped, she was having consensual sex or something, then she gets prosecuted. Now, I don't know why he wouldn't be prosecuted either, but that's a minor detail. As I say, it doesn't happen all that often, but or just the more general phenomenon that is claimed that, you know, in Sharia, and it doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time, but it is sometimes suggested that, you know, just the fact that you need four female witnesses compared to a man for every male witness. Well, women don't bring it up here. Why don't they bring it up in the United States? Embarrassed? Yeah, but I think there's. I think there's. I mean, I think you're both right, but there's something about our legal system that's also very discouraging. What's that? They like to blame the victim. And how does that happen? Um, they'll make it her fault, like she was dressed provocatively, or she was alone, or she should have been, like she could have avoided it by not. And how does that happen? Right, and what, specifically what? You're, 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 everything you said is right on the money. You're almost there. The man's word against the woman. No, well, not quite that bad, but. Um, publicly. What's that? Okay. It occurs publicly in a courtroom. Well, that's embarrassing, but that gets more, more to the embarrassment issue. I'm thinking of cross-examination, right? So you're a prosecution witness. You go first. You get friendly questions. And then somebody comes up, and they can't say that it's totally not irrelevant. Even though in principle you say if someone's been raped, it's totally irrelevant. Even if you're, pro you're provocatively dressed, even if the guy thought you was consent, you have to. The issue is whether you did consent, not whether the guy thought you consented. And certainly, if a woman said no, if those are the facts, it doesn't matter means what. It's a rape, I guess, right? To the extent that I understand the law. But in cross-examination, they'll go. That immediately goes through your whole sexual history including what the things you mentioned. And that's demeaning, to say the least, just to, ha to go through it publicly. And by the way, in a criminal trial, you don't get any money from a criminal trial. It's just to put the person away. If the person has money, that means you've got to go through the whole thing again in a civil trial. Um, and that's only if the person has money. And you know enough money so that it's worth your while to, to get a huge settlement. Uh, I don't hear of too many rape civil trials. In fact, I don't, I don't believe I've ever heard of any of them. I think you know people do it for criminal reasons because they want to put the person away. Um, date rape, I think, is particularly pernicious because the people are friendly to each other, friends, let's say. Um, whereas a rape on the street by a total stranger is shocking, horrifying. And it's much easier to prove rape. But certainly in, a, in an alleged date rape situation, the woman said, I said no. The guy said, he never said no. And by the way, people lie under oath. 
You never knew that. Um, in fact, when they've got the face in your 10-year sentence, the chances of lying are, are, are not small, put it that way. So an interesting legal question would be, given that women in the United States and any common law country have to face sometimes very withering cross-examination, do such countries that have ratified CEDAW, so it wouldn't apply to the United States because we haven't ratified CEDAW, but do such countries run the risk of, of discriminating against women in a way that violates this treaty? Or is this a situation where the right to a fair trial, that is the defendant's right to a fair trial in particular, is more important than the woman's right to have him prosecuted, or society's right to have him prosecuted? Like a lot of these conflicts uh, involves two competing rights, but unlike a lot of these comments, both of these come under the rubric of right to a fair trial. Do you think the United States ought to change its criminal procedure so that rape victims don't have to be subject to cross-examination? Or at least allow judges to rule as irrelevant sexual history of, of women? I mean, in other words, could you actually make cross-examination much more palatable, much more less humiliating? in the whole process. Anyone have a view? Well, I mean, you can always, I suppose, restrict what, what's acceptable as evidence in the courtroom. Well, but again, there can be an appeal that on the law that, you know, you denied my right to a fair cross-examination. You violated my constitutional right to a fair trial. Right. And there's always... There's no constitutional right for equality for women in the United States Constitution. The 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was instituted after the Civil War for freed slaves. Actually, it wasn't even for blacks in general, but just freed slaves. That's not the only circumstance where a person's personal history is aired in public court. I mean, yes, but a person's personal history, uh, you know, isn't always issues of privacy. So quick, right. I'm just saying, for example, if, if I were having an affair um, and you know, a dead body showed up in my mistress's house and we all went to court, my sort of secret liaison with this woman would suddenly become public knowledge. It would all come that out was in a public. Pretty right? quick example. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm just saying that would be, um, and that's just the nature. Sounds of like the housewives day. from Atlanta. <laughs> but I'm just saying that's just the nature of the beast. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to prevent the district attorney from actually prosecuting a murderer out of a concern for my scruples or my you know, sensibilities with regard to my private life. My, you know, I don't know. Well, I'm just putting there is a counter argument that right. could be made that you know, one consequence of the right to fair trial is, is discrimination against rape victims. By the way, a rape victim could be a male too. Right. Not by a female probably, but Unless there was a gun involved or something of that nature. I guess that's a male fantasy, isn't it? Um, <laughs> forgive me. Um, <laughs> wasn't that funny, was it? All right. Um, so what are the major landmarks in, in this process? Uh, 
First of all, remember, CEDAW is not a criminal treaty, right? There are some human rights treaties, like the Torture Convention, that makes it required for ratifying states to make torture a crime and to prosecute or extradite. In this particular trial, discrimination is a civil remedy. Stopping discrimination is a civil remedy. But in international criminal law, uh, various tribunals have made rape a prosecutable crime. First, as a part of genocide in the 1998 Akayesu case, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, one of the two first ad hoc tribunals that were established in the 1990s, where they didn't have on the statute the crime of rape because the Geneva Conventions on which the statute was based did not mention the word rape because in 1949 when the Geneva Conventions were negotiated mostly by men, rape was not a very polite word to use. So it talked about violations of the dignity of women. So what the court did was a Mayor Akayesu in Rwanda did a lot of horrific things, and among the counts of the, on genocide was organizing mass rape. So that was not only the first genocide convention, sorry, genocide conviction in U.S. history, in world history. Although one could say the crimes against humanity at Nuremberg in 1946 was also the same thing, but they had a different name for it. But it definitely was the first major international criminal tribunal for mass rapes. Notice. Mass rapes in wartime as a wartime strategy is not the same thing as common law rape. The difference is common law rape is the act of a single individual, presumably, not a conspiracy, not as a war aim or a war tactic. And this international criminal law is is in the context of armed conflict. So currently, under international criminal law, human trafficking, which is discussed in detail in the chapter, is not a crime that any court that I know of allows to prosecute. One would think, you know, in this day and age where girls and young adult females are either kidnapped or fed a false story and then trafficked across borders in some country where they don't speak the language, and then subjected to all kinds of violence if they say, I quit, or I don't like doing this, or what have you. Or if they're kidnapped, of course, you know, they don't even, didn't even have a say in the matter. That's a pretty horrific crime as crimes go. Uh, I, I realize there are some people in the world who are sex workers by choice, but it, in those situations, even in those situations, the choice is probably not because they really like it, but it's a way to make a living in a terrible economic situation. But certainly trafficking of boys, of men and boys it might be a problem, but particularly for girls and women, particularly the younger the girl, the even more worse that it is, where you just ruin that person's life. And sometimes it's multi-generational. The mother did it, the mother gets kidnapped, she brings her kids or she, she gets kids, and then the kids grow up in that lifestyle and, and, and don't really have a choice of something else to do other than being this kind of sex worker type phenomenon. So in terms of international criminal law, you can, in an armed conflict, theoretically prosecute rapists, but there's an awful lot of mass rape that goes on around the world that goes unpunished, even in armed conflict. 
And so far, we don't have any international basis for prosecuting in an international tribunal uh, human trafficking of girls or women. Of course, most countries, if not all countries, make any kind of rape criminal and, where possible, prosecutable. One question is, is the American way or the advanced country way the humane way, or is it more humane to follow the Islamic way? In their argument about Islamic exceptionalism, such as the exception, they say, look, we have punishments that you would consider to be cruel and therefore unconstitutional or in violation of certain human rights treaties. Our punishments are swift, painful, and so unforgettable you'll never do it again. And they don't go necessarily as far as something like castration. Sorry about this graphic detail. Um, but, you know, whipping a dozen times with lashes, with marks showing, that's considered torture. But if you want to solve the rape problem, and assuming, let's assume for the purpose of discussion, you know, we know the person who's guilty is guilty, might it not be a better, more effective way than putting someone, someone away for two or three years and letting them back on the streets? What do you think? Somebody else as well. Anybody? The question is, wouldn't 50 lashes be a more effective punishment? You'll never forget it, right? Would you ever do it again? No. I'm saying you would do it over in the first place, but assuming you were a criminal who did that kind of thing, would you be more likely to do it spending two years in prison or getting 50 lashes and the whole thing's over with in 10 minutes? 50 lashes would do the trick. So who's more civilized? Sharia law or the West? I don't really know if you can say that 50 lashes would guarantee someone not to do it. Well, there are no guarantees, but just in terms of probability. That doesn't mean they're civilized. That just means that they have. What is more civilized? What is more civilized is jail, but more effective is probably, you know, capital punishment or getting what you deserve. But that's not civilized. That's crazy. Isn't civilized something that works better? No? Not in this case. No, yeah. I think, I you're, right. I think you're right. I'm just making an argument. That's just not ethical. I mean, it's just not ethical. They're being ethical. And the unfair treatment of prisoners and all. But it's probably more Well, it's something to think about in the classroom. If, you know, in our lifetime, I doubt we're going to start using lashes. It'd be cheaper. But we do torture <laughs> prisoners who are guilty, but they haven't gone through due process. But they get waterboarded. Right? Uh, for a lot of Americans, it, it's conceivable that the reason they are not scandalized by the fact that various Al-Qaeda types were waterboarded 183 times in one month, that's six times a day for a month, simulating drowning, uh, is that they say they deserve it. So if we do it for 9-11 type terrorists, why don't we do it for rapists? Terrorists are worse? Are terrorists any worse than rapists? <coughs> I mean, the national security of the country is not threatened by mass rape, I suppose, unless it kept on going. But, uh, I would think the logic here has to do with um, the rights to the grant system. 
Well, that explains why it happened, but the normative question is. Well, and, and the normative question would be that. Is a rapist any morally worse? He, he, he may be just as morally bad, but um, the interests of society dictate that we restrain ourselves from treating the rapist because he's a citizen. Because we Why should we treat non-citizens with any less dignity than citizens? Because we're trying to preserve the order within our society. We're not concerned with the order out, outside of it. Why shouldn't we be? Well, we should be to the extent that it's well, for one thing, there are, there, there are effects that result from how we treat, namely that bin Laden really wins when we torture. Why? Because he provokes us into a war with him, right. which is what he wants. <coughs> Excuse me. And thank you. And, and after he gets what we want, then we torture, and then we enrage the Muslim world. And then we get a war of religions, which is what he also wants. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I'm trying to. So, in actual fact, torturing internally backfires strategically right. in the long run. So, even though we're not trying to or concerned with order in other countries, it does affect our order in our own country. I'm just trying to understand the rationale. Well, their rationale is, they say, is actionable intelligence. Maybe they want confessions. Maybe they want to have a sense of vindication or punishment. Uh, maybe they uh, want to appear tough. Maybe they want to deter torture, terrorism in the future by saying, this is what you got coming for you. No justice. And is. Or it's just the heat of the moment. You know, a lot of torture, I think, happens because you're in this very confrontational situation. The cops want to know who did it. You won't tell. They think you know. Um, they figure if they knock you up a few times, you might talk. Whether it works or not is an empirical question. But in the heat of the moment, also, you know, the torture of Rodney King, you know, wasn't justified, certainly, but when the taser bullets bounced off his chest like he was Superman. And they kept on, he, he refused to be restrained originally. That led to excessive beating. So another factor might be the heat of the moment, like interrogation session. Um, how about sexual harassment? That was a term that was kind of invented in the United States 20 years ago, next Columbus Day weekend, on the 20th anniversary of Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill's testimony against Clarence Thomas on the Senate confirmation. Uh, it'll be 20 years coming up. Time flies, at least for some of us. Um, and the whole notion that boys will be boys suddenly was thrown out the window, I guess. Is sexual har harassment? Uh, part of CEDAW? Is it part of the American law? It's, there's no ERA. There's, it was decided by the United States by one state, short of a minimum for ratification, three quarters of the states, of an Equal Rights Amendment. So the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause that were not extended <laughs> for women um, because the jurisprudence had always said that was limited to race issues. So we have no constitutionally protection, protection against women as a group as well as, as individuals in the Constitution. A state 
or if the Congress, for that matter, can pass laws that can be the source of anti-discrimination remedies. But there's no constitutional basis for protecting women against sexual harassment in the office. No constitutional basis. It still could be criminal, it still could be illegal, particularly if there's violence involved. But even if it was you know, abusive behavior, uh, there's nothing in the US Constitution to stop it. Is the United States um, in violation of women's rights by not having an ERA amendment? Some states have it, some states don't. Some states have more, some have less. Well, that's like states rights. Pardon me? It's just like states' rights. It's like if there's a significant enough problem with states, then implementation can. Well, not all states do. Yeah, so then it's not really a violation if it's not a problem nationwide. But some states wanted slavery. Why not? You're right. No, no. I'm not <laughs> trying to win an argument. I mean, you could say slavery is not sexual harassment. You could say slavery is worse. That would be an answer. It's absolutely wrong, no matter what states want. Uh, genocide is worse. Or you could say, no, this is also bad. Um, in terms of remedy, a constitutional remedy would be stronger, but it would not give states the discretion or the experimentation on how, how to go about it. In any event, we don't have equal rights protection in the United States in the US Constitution. And we haven't ratified CEDAW for that matter, so we're not in violation of a convention we haven't ratified. However, the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was a General Assembly recommendation, not a treaty, but highly regarded as a binding instrument of customary international law because of all the treaties that have referred to it, and a treaty that the US has ratified, the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, bans discrimination not only against blacks, but also two issues that the United States didn't have in 1948 when the Declaration was passed, namely ethnic discrimination and female discrimination. Um, and to some people could argue there are other groups, perhaps gays, perhaps old people, perhaps young people, for which discrimination may or may not be acceptable, depending on interpretation. Now, let's get to the one core issue, group rights. What is a group right as opposed to an individual right? Who can tell me a definition of a group right? A group right protects the group. Okay. That's right. What does that mean? Uh, there's a group of, well, if, if the CEDAW was uh, effective, it would protect the rights of women. As a group? As a group. That's right. And what are some of what are some rights of women as a group? Vote. Vote? No, that's an individual right. You vote, vote as an individual. Uh, what do you do as a group? Um, do you go to the bathroom in a woman's bathroom? Not as a group. Well, they're children. You would be. I guess a, a, a group right would be like facilities built just for women and not for men. Oh yeah, like women's hospitals. Or women's, you know, gynecological services. Um, under an equal rights amendment, would it be mandatory for a hospital to provide equal hospital facilities for breast cancer as for prostate cancer? Uh, 
I realize men can get breast cancer, and I guess women don't have prostates, do they? No, but they can't get abortions. Okay, so would it be discrimination against men to provide gynecological services? After all, men don't get it. A literal interpretation would be that you can't give women anything special if you, if, unless they have group rights. Because if you believed in equality, then you'd say anything that's unequal is not acceptable. Obviously, it's a ridiculous example. We wouldn't have a human race if women didn't have services that are needed, you know, whether it's a doula or a, what is the name of a woman? Usually a woman. Who's during childbirth? Midwife. Midwife. Or mid what's it called? Wet nurse? No? Midwife. Okay. In any event, you know, that there is the sense that there are things that human beings do as groups, like worshiping as a group, or owning property as a group, right? The members of a church may own or the Catholic Church, which is an institution, owns property. Uh, I don't know what kind of group a Catholic Church or IBM or the state of Georgia are, but one thing they're not is an individual. And, and these entities have rights, and women, you know, as a collectivity, have rights, right? They have, they, they, they can't be discriminated against in law, but that could be argued that it's done on an individual basis if the discrimination occurs individually, but suppose it's the policy of a corporation not to hire women, then it would be a violation of female group rights because the policy is aimed at the group. Uh, the more typical thing is like freedom of religion is an individual right to worship as an individual, but it's also a group right to, to participate in that community. The right to a common language. Maybe the right of, of women to have um, 